is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our own Alex Cortez went on a road trip to an event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. And now Alex brings us this open call story. It was 10.30 a.m. and it suddenly got louder as the entrepreneurs came out of the rooms where they had their half-hour pitch meetings. And a Houstonian named Mike Watts came out and showed me the sheet that he just kissed. So yeah, we've got our, uh, our, our sheet here. We've got our sheet here. It says, yes, thank you for a great meeting. We look forward to continuing this journey. And uh, they want it. They want our product. We're going to be able to add jobs immediately in our local hometown. Today we have 32 full-time employees. Based on this meeting, we're going to be able to add more immediately. I expect it maybe about 50 employees by Christmas. So I just am so excited that, that that's 50 families, right, that are now going to have a job. I can't even express to you how excited that we are. It's a dream come true. It really is a dream come true. Mike's company, Love Handle, has a phone grip that you slip your fingers through. It is better than anything else on the market and will now be in a market called Walmart. I think I'm just going to go around here and high-five people and uh, pass out all these love handles to anybody that's willing to take them. We literally brought uh, 2,000 of them with us, and we've passed out a few hundred already. So we're going to spend the rest of the day sharing the love with everyone that's here in Bentonville. And I'm probably going to do a bunch of social media videos and just share the enthusiasm. Fixing they probably go live and uh, jump and do some backflips. I don't even know if I can do a backflip, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I had my first job at 15 because I wanted to have some money. Yeah, you want a car? Fine. Earn some money, go buy a car. You want to go take a girl out on a date? Well, you better have some money to do it. So 15 years old, you know, I went to the mall, and uh, they just opened up a baseball card shop. I was like, man, I love baseball cards, and I love being at the mall because that's where the girls were. So I, I got my dream job there at 15, and next thing you know, I became manager. And so by the time I was 18 years old, I was running 14 employees there, all older than me hiring and firing, and uh, had a shoe store and a you know, clothing store that I was running and operating. So I learned about what it takes for people to buy, like how to sell, how to merchandise, how inventory works, what margin is, and all those things at a very early age. And I think that planted a seed in me that I wanted to be able to, to be in that space because it was so exciting. So I left corporate America when I was 30 years old. And I've been a full-time entrepreneur for the last 14 years. Uh, when I left, I had three small children at home. Nice corporate job, very comfortable, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, it was, you know, 3% raise every year, and there was a ceiling there that I couldn't break through, and I just felt like I could do more on my own. And so I want to thank my wife for believing in me from day one, the day I left my corporate job. And she's been side by side. Like, even before then, we had a side hustle going. I was selling stuff at home and garden shows every weekend, every holiday, every sick day. I was trying to make some extra money so she could stay home with the kids. 
But back then, she was traveling with me, with our first child. He would sit underneath the table all weekend in a home and garden show watching Veggie Tales on a little VCR player that we carried around. I'm dating myself with the VCR. And uh, he would sit under there and watch videos while we were up top. And the customers never knew. Like, there's tablecloth. They didn't know he was under there. And he's under there, and we're just hustling, trying to make extra money. And eventually, he couldn't travel. We had another child. And so all that leading up to the point where we're finally like, let's make a go of it. We found this patented pivot trim trimmer head and it solved another problem for weekend warriors that were cutting their grass this is a trimmer head that would fit any trimmer but the lines don't break and they last so much longer and so you know you can go out and cut your whole yard and never change the line and we're going to make a go of it with that and she's like uh, let's do it like let's put all our chips in the middle we walked away from health insurance we walked away from everything that would have possibly uh, been what traditionally called security and we went for it and it's really paid off so i encourage people to to take those risks out there that might seem like too big i'd say the biggest risk is to do nothing at all to sit complacently behind and let other people dictate what your life is and mike's business partner his old man thought the same way he had also left his job he worked in a chemical plant for years and became a piping designer and then they offered him a package out and that was i'm looking at him as a mentor he took the money that they gave him in a package, 18 months pay, and he took all that money. He bought tables, chairs, tents, and margarita machines, and he started a party rental business. And that party rental business has been in business now for over 25 years. Me and my dad, you know, side by side, right? How cool is that, that we get to partner up together? And he lets me be the boss, right? And he's the cheerleader, and, and it's a great setup. And then eventually we cashed out and took an exit from our largest distributor. But then when we sold the company, I went home, he went home. And we were kind of sad. It's like selling a child. You know, it's like, not exactly, but it, it's, it's not easy. Because you've invested so much of yourself personally into building it up. And then to give someone else the keys, and then they show you the door. It doesn't matter how, what that wire transfer looks like. It's, it's going to hurt. But it's part of the process, and I think that the best healing that can happen is to do it all over again. Like... Yeah, you can only, like, play around the house and go fishing, you know, so much, right? We love fishing, but you can only go so much before you, you're trying to figure out, like, what do we do next? And so I was on the hunt for the next new thing, and when I found this product, you know, I'm not smart enough to invent anything, right? I'm on the hunt always for great new products, and when I find one, I'll meet with the inventor and say, look, I'm a passionate marketer. I want to give your product life. I want to take it to the world to make a difference, and I'll make you a millionaire in the process. So that's what we did with this product. It was invented by John Murphy in Minnesota, and we partnered with him five years ago, and this one, we're not selling this one. So anybody out there listening, it's not for sale. Uh, this is going to be a cash cow that's going to create jobs for a long time in the future. I think Love Handle will be a story that we hear about and a household name that you're going to know for, for you know decades to come. And we've been listening to Mike Watson. He's the co-founder of Love Handle. And what a father-son relationship we're hearing. Because let's face it, this dad let his son and the mother too, go out and go be an entrepreneur and go start and build things on his own. At 15, he was, well, doing what he loved, working with, well, baseball cards and girls. And the next thing you know, by 18, he's managing employees and managing something. He's not an infant at 18. He's an adult, and the family's treating him as such. When we come back, we'll continue with Mike Watts, the story of Love Handle, and the story of Walmart and their open call here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Walmart's open call, where over 500 entrepreneurs pitched to get into their stores and where we met Mike Watts, who co-founded a phone grip company called Love Handle with his old man. Let's return to the story. We've invested everything we had into this idea, literally everything. We had a big exit. We pushed all our chips back in the middle on this idea because we believed in it. But did their family and friends believe that they were crazy for risking everything in the nice life that they just earned? Some did. Some did. Some some said we should just ride the wave, you know, into off into the wild sunset. But we told ourselves, we promised ourselves this time, we're like, look, it's going to be hard. There's going to be tough days, and there's been a lot of tough days, but we're going to enjoy the ride. Here's Mike on their toughest day. We uh, ordered our first batch of product from China. We had $500,000 worth of product that came in, and they had gotten cheap glue, used some cheap glue, so the product just fell apart. We had to literally, no refunds, you know, it's not like Walmart, you can't take your back with your receipt. We, we literally loaded it in a truck, took it to the dump, and had to push half a million dollars worth of product into the dump, right out of the gate. And then we had no way to make any product. Like, we had no product to sell. It was, we had to go with no money. I, I went for no pay, with no pay, for four and a half years. Zero income. We paid all the employees, but me and my dad, we worked for free. Um, up until just very recently, I was finally able to draw a modest salary. And then I'll keep that going until there's you know, something happens in the future, but I'm really, I'm not in it for the money. Like when I'm in it to try to make the most out of my life. Like, I feel like I have a purpose in my life to, uh, to motivate other people to, to find their uh, dreams and to achieve those dreams. So maybe by hearing my story, someone else says, you know what, I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna, if he can do it, anybody can do it. And that's true. Perseverance, positive perseverance is, is what it takes. You have to be willing to get yourself back up quickly, dust yourself off, and then find a new path. And ultimately, it's the best thing that could have happened to us because it forced me to say, I'm going to find a way to make this in America. And so now our product is top quality. It'll always be top quality. Everything's made in-house 100%. So we can still make it at a cost that's almost exactly the same of what we can make in China. And even though... Uh, the product that we would get out of China would be far inferior. We've actually had to go in and design our own elastic, the weave, and the components. We had to design it from the bottom up to be for this purpose only because we're carrying around $1,000 phones. And I'm telling my customers, you can trust this thing because you can. Uh, the adhesive is the top grade. The elastic's the top grade. The welding process that we do to, to, to put them together is tested and it's top class. So it's a really, really high quality product. For that toughest day and all days, Mike has a source of strength that's beyond anything that he could muster. God's opened up so many doors for us time and time again. We've, and, and, and he's closed doors that, that we thought should be open, right? And we didn't have, we don't have control of this whole thing, right? I'm just trying to do the best I can. He's the CEO. I'm the janitor. Everybody knows me as the janitor at work, right? Because I want to be a servant leader. I really do. And learn from the way that he led. And so we very much believe that he has a purpose with this company and that he is going to grow us in ways that it's going to 
glorify Him. And so having that sort of long-term faith takes a lot of pressure off of me, right? Because now if we succeed or we fail, you know, in quotes, uh, it's not on me. It's, it's Him, right? So I'm just trying to do the best I can to lean in and step forward into the dark room and do the hard work and then try to hopefully see some results uh, before I check out. One of those doors opened had Shark Tank's Damon John walking through it. He reached out to me. I was a dream of mine to be on Shark Tank, right? Like, big Shark Tank fan. I've seen every episode. Uh, we auditioned twice and made it to the second round both times, but never actually got to go on set. He was starting to use our product and fell in love with it, just like all our customers do, and was ordering it on our website. But that, you know what? I think the lesson here is that as an entrepreneur, like I was, that was a late night. Everyone else had gone home. I'm sitting there looking through one order at a time to see who's, who's ordering, what are they ordering? Like, trying to understand our customers. And then I see that, and it said the Shark Group, which is his branding company in New York City. And I, I knew who they were. I was like, that's Damon's company. I was like, oh my goodness, so there's a phone number. I was like, call, get Simone. Simone works for Damon, build a relationship with her, send a bunch of product, print some with his new book title on it, with the Shark Group on it, you know, and then now I'm impressing him. And next thing you know, the phone rings. He gives us a call. He's like, look, I don't do this. I don't need to do this. I don't have, I got people bringing me products all day long. Your product is that good. We got to work something out. I was like, great. So we'll put it back and forth. I didn't, I didn't just jump at it, um, which I think, again, earned some respect from him because, you know, he's, we're like cut out of the same cloth. He's a, just a straight, 100% pure thoroughbred entrepreneur. And so am I. And so we've got to got that common ground for us. And so he, uh, we worked out a deal that made sense. So now it's a DMD products. Dave's my dad, right? He's the patriarch. Uh, I'm Mike, and then we got Damon John. So uh, we call him Uncle D, Uncle Damon. Uh, but yeah, so it gave me access to his whole team. Uh, I was actually supposed to be on the set of Shark Tank on Monday, uh, just backstage. Like, so that was my dream to get on Shark Tank. He was going to let me like come backstage and hang out with Lori and Mark Cuban and Mr. Wonderful and, and all that stuff. But the, the, my flight got canceled, so I didn't get to go. But I still, again, I think there's a better plan. Maybe I'm going to be a shark one day. You never know. But first, Mike had to pitch to get into this big place called Walmart. We're prepared. We came in prepared. We've been practicing. They gave us some information about make sure you're storytelling, right? Tell them a story. And so we really refined that going into it. I wanted them to tell them a story about the inventory that we had to push and why we make our products in America, right? And I wanted to tell them a story about how I made a deal with Damon John from Shark Tank and how he's a business partner of mine now. And uh, we had a video clip from Damon that, that we played in there addressed to them, right? So we came out guns a blazing, man. I want to genuinely say that this has been an amazing experience. From the moment we arrived at the airport here, the, the greeting that we were given, and the fact that they genuinely care about American jobs. Like, it's not lip service here. They really care. And for them to uh, invite us up and to create an environment where we can show, you know, our little American-made product to them, and then now they're going to be able to give us hope to where we're going to be able to share that product and passion that we have with everyone. It's, it's just been amazing. They're a genuine partner. They're honest. They're just, I'm so excited to, to work with them. They're, they're the dream retailer. And Mike also has a dream employee named Scott, who was standing next to him. Well, Scott's great. You know, Scott uh, has been with us now for four months and is doing a killer job. Uh, if it wasn't for Scott, we wouldn't be here today. That's the short story. 
He, he went and he uh, proactively, I didn't ask him to, proactively submitted for us to go on open call. And so he took that initiative, which was huge, and because we would literally would not be here today, right? This, this whole thing. Good job, right? And he's constantly, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? He's the last one to leave with me at night. And it's, you know, having people like that on the team that feel as much like it's their business, even though he's only been here for four months, you know, it's invaluable. So, you know, to entrepreneurs out there, like, find people with that passion. Like, you can teach everything else, but if, if you can find people with passion and drive and a little bit of wit about them to find their way, then, then you're going to be successful. But you can't have Scott. He's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been listening to Mike Watts, who's the co-founder of Love Handle, and what a story he had to tell about his life, about service, and about his father, and about Walmart. I mean, the remarkable thing, the story that's not told about Walmart, we know that they deliver lower prices and save people lots of money. And we know that they employ, well, over a million people, the largest employer in America. And they've raised the minimum wage without the government forcing them to. They just did it. And companies do this, folks, because they want to keep their people. But the biggest thing we didn't know was what we learned from Mike about the fact that if Walmart gives Love Handle, his company, an order, Love Handle gets to, well, employ more people. And so that's the downstream employment from our big American companies that nobody talks about. And this is where Walmart becomes a great, great corporate citizen. And by the way, we also got to hear Mike talk about service and being a good servant. In the end, that's what free market capitalism does. If you don't like the restaurant, if they don't serve you well, you leave. You get to vote with your feet and your wallet. And it's what makes, well, it's what makes this country great. The story of Walmart's open call and the story of Mike Watts, the co-founder of Love Handle, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we're always looking for your stories about entrepreneurship and about free markets and about, well, your business story, if you have one, or a friend or a relative or just someone in town who runs a great store. All these stories, quintessential American stories, here on Our American Stories. I have a new single that's been out maybe 10 days or so. For those of you uh, who have not heard it, I will tell you that it was written and produced by a young man named Lionel Richie of the Commodores. And it's called Lady. Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor. And I love you You have made me what I am I am yours And we continue here with our American stories We're about to hurtle off into one of our favorite regular features The story of a song That was just Kenny Rogers you heard 
introducing back in 1980 a new song of his written by a songwriter, a young songwriter named Lionel Richie. If you notice, the audience didn't scream and yell or applaud because, well, they didn't know who he was yet. He wasn't Lionel Richie yet. Now let's go to Greg Hankler for this installment of the story of a song. It's hard to believe, but one of Kenny Rogers' biggest hits first appeared as an extra track on his 1980 Greatest Hits album, an album that would end up topping the country and pop album charts. The success of Lady also boosted Lionel Richie's career. The writing and production work was Richie's first outside the Commodores and foreshadowed his success as a solo act during the 1980s. Kenny Rogers once told an interviewer, The idea was that Lionel would come from R&B and I'd come from country and we'd meet somewhere in pop. Lady became the first song of the 1980s to chart on all four of Billboard magazine's singles charts for country, Hot 100, adult contemporary, and top black singles. Here's Kenny Rogers telling the story of Lady at the Lionel Richie and Friends tribute concert back in 2012, with Richie sitting front and center. To say I'm excited about being a part of this is an understatement, to say the least. But you know, Lionel, first of all, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy for you. You know, you deserve what you're getting here. Lionel and I met 32 years ago, right here in Las Vegas. But, you know, I'm so excited about this because... Now, for those of you who are young, aspiring songwriters who want to learn how to pitch a song, Lionel is your guy. I called him from the Riviera here, and I said, Lionel, I'd love for you to come over and write a song for me. And he said, I don't think I have time. <laughs> I said, well, I, it's going to be a part of a greatest hits album. It'll sell, I think, a minimum of four or five million records. He says, it's seven o'clock tomorrow night, okay. <laughs> so he came in at seven o'clock, and we had this little upright rinky-dink piano in the dressing room, and he starts to play, and then he says, before I do this, I have to tell you, I pitched this to the Commodores, and they turned it down, which I thought was an interesting approach to selling a song. <laughs> so he sits down, and he starts playing, and he goes, Lady, wait, wait. <laughs> and the rest of it, all he had was the one word. I said, how could they have turned that word down, I asked you. <laughs> so we go in the studio, six months later, we're recording. I finished the first verse of the song. And I'm sitting looking at the lyric sheets and there's not a second verse. And I said, wait a minute, where's Lionel? I swear to God, he's in the toilet writing the second verse. They said he's at his best under pressure. So I am so excited about being here, you know. And uh, you're not just a friend of mine, but the song you wrote, was truly a changing point in my career. It's one of the most identifiable songs I've ever done. I'd love to have you come up and sing it with me, if you will. Come on, come on.
Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And what a story. What a story about the pitch. What a story about how Lionel and Kenny came to make this song the hit it became. And what a hit it became. And I just will always picture in my mind that scene of Lionel in the bathroom, locked up, 
under pressure, so to speak, to come up with that second verse. The story of his song, the story in the end of a friendship between Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie, here on Our American Story. We continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories from all walks of life here on this show, as you know. Some of the stories are inspiring, we hope. Some are pretty tough. And some, like this one, well, they're a mixture of both. Here's retired Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch speaking frankly to some U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen about what happened to him after being wounded in action. My life was being a Navy SEAL. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't realize the extent of my commitment to it until afterwards when I could no longer do it. And uh, the way my career, uh, as I call it, ended um, was not the easiest way to go. It really, really uh, was difficult. It was a hostage rescue mission. We were trying to rescue that young kid, uh, Bo Bergdahl, that's been in the news a bit. Couldn't see the guys. I knew there were people out there. Uh, in a hostage rescue mission, you can't just shoot people. <laughs> you got to see who's who in the zoo. It's at night. Uh, the visibility wasn't very good. And we used the dog to find those guys. And the dog found them. And the only w- way I knew that they were hostile was I saw one guy shoot the dog in the head. Um, at that point, I could see with the muzzle flash that he was armed, so I started uh, filling him in, as it were, shooting him. And his buddy panicked, like they always do, uh, because they suck. And he sprayed, and uh, thank God he didn't hit the other two guys that were with me. Um, but he hit me, and he didn't have the decency to hit me in the body armor that I had to wear all the time. So, blew my femur out of the back of my leg, tossed me in the air, and I'm in the air, and I'm thinking, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream. Hit the ground. What did I do? It hurts so bad. And I felt bad for years. I felt like such a weak individual for screaming. But man, it was powerful. At that point, I transitioned. I didn't know it, but I became an observer. Uh, a witness, as it were, to my crew and their spirit and their strength. Guys had to finish the gunfight. I couldn't put my tourniquet on myself because when I tried to do it, it would, my femur would twist and I would scream some more, which is bad. I wasn't really useless. I was actually a hazard. Because if you got a guy that's screaming around you, they just got to throw grenades in the direction of that guy, right? It was bad. I didn't want to scream anymore. So I didn't put my tourniquet on until the gunfight was over. Two uh, people who had been to an advanced army medic school heard me on the radio or heard on the radio that I'd been hit. And they came from different parts of the target uh, over open ground, having to shoot people to get to me. And they went to work on me and saved me. I got flown out, medevaced. Um, Sat there with the dog at my feet when the helicopter flew us out. Um, And this is the first time where I'm in the company of other people who had gotten hurt. 
And I realized as I'm laying there that I'm not hurt that bad. That there were people on that plane being medevaced with me that were severely hurt. People that didn't look like humans anymore. They were wrapped up in gauze and they had hoses running in and out. These little things were etched on my hard drive. These are things that I had to deal with later. One night I stuck a gun in my mouth after I'd gotten treatment to get my leg healed up. I stuck the gun in my mouth in front of my wife, which is pathetic. I know how to use a gun. If I wanted to die, I'd be dead, right? It was a cry for help. I had become addicted to the pain meds and I was washing them down with Stoli's vodka, just a tip, don't do that, it's not a good way to go. Put a gun in my mouth in front of my wife. My wife was scared to death. She got the gun away from me. She immediately called my unit. My unit said, call the police, we can't get there quick enough. She called the police, told them exactly who I was in the world and what I'd been doing for the majority of my life, and that I was going nuts. And those guys came to my house, they knew who I was, they knew I had guns and knives. Uh, they had every right to at least give me a good tasing or a beating, you know? They de-escalated the situation. They kept me calm uh, until my crew got there. My crew put me in a car, took me to the Naval Hospital, uh, where I agreed to go to the fifth floor, which is the psych ward. I was humiliated. Um, I needed help, but I didn't know how to get it. I had alienated myself and pushed myself away from people. So there I am sitting in the hospital in my purple pajamas with a towel this big so I don't hang myself. And I'm embarrassed. I was a team leader on a SEAL team. I had over 150 direct action combat missions. I'd been in a lot of gunfights. I was proud of what I had done. And now I'm sitting in the psych ward with kids working there that are just have been in the Navy a year or two that are like babysitting me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, my crew came to see me. And I was embarrassed and I didn't want them to come see me. I never once realized how fortunate I was to that point in my life. Um, quick tip though, if you're ever in the psych ward, and God, I hope you'd ever have to go there. Uh, don't do this. So my buddies came to see me. I'm a, I'm a big skydiver. They bring these skydiving magazines in, and they hand them to me across the table. One of the young uh, people that worked in the psych ward came over and said, Sir, we got to take those magazines from you. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, i got staples in them, and you could hurt people with those staples. And I said, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this room, you're one that's crazy. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Never do that. Do not threaten the staff in the psych ward. Huh? You'll probably get a good shot. And you're going to stay there, like I did, a few extra days. So uh, while I sat there, my buddies had gone to work um, trying to figure out what they were going to do to me. People at my unit, uh, very senior people, uh, were involved in my personal little saga. And it wasn't like their bandwidth wasn't full of other things, like other combat missions and other things going on with other people in the unit. But they showed me their value. I could not deny that they valued me because they committed so much to making sure that I got better. The same guy who saved my life in combat, he flew me, rented a car, and drove me to this psych hospital. See, you get a lot of medals in gunfights when you save people's lives. You don't get any medals for driving your buddy to the psych hospital. That's a true commitment. Why would he do that? Because he cared about me. I had value, right? So I'm checking in to the hospital, and they're going through my bag like I'm a felon. I'm offended by this because I'm a tough guy, Navy SEAL commando, and... I look at my buddy and I said, hey man, I'm not doing this. I'm running. There's no way. He said, well, look, 
first of all, you can't run anymore. <laughs> what a jerk, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And secondly, you need to do this. You need to do this for yourself and for your family and for the rest of us that are coming down the road. And he was right. When somebody saves your life, you owe them a couple things. One, you can't disrespect them. And two, you can't make the efforts that they extended on your behalf a waste. So at that point, I realized that I was going into this hospital. It was a great thing for me. I spent a lot of time in that hospital. I think it was close to uh, four and a half months. And why it was great for me was that I realized that you don't have to be in combat to have traumatic things happen. This was the turning point for me, one of the major ones. I'm in a group session. There are professional people from the civilian world in this group session with me. And they'd all been through tough stuff. And we're going around, we're talking about these things, and we get to a young woman, she's probably 30 years of age. And she said, when I was 11 years old, two of my uncles raped me in front of my father on Christmas Eve. What do I say to that? I've got problems. I got shot in the leg on a mission I volunteered for with a group of people that I loved, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And this young woman is in here brawling with this. What do you think she thinks every year at Christmas Eve? That was a turning point for me. Life's combat, man. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to have things happen to you that are difficult. Your people don't have to be combat people to have things happen to them that are going to make them go nuts. So I graduate from this uh, little hospital, and I go home, uh, and I continue to get treatment, seek a counselor. I get retired from the service. Um, point with all that is that I didn't want help. I didn't want people to think I was weak. I didn't want people to know that I was suffering. I didn't want to suffer. And for a long time, I wished I'd have died that night. Because, you know, nobody hates dead people, right? You don't snore. You don't cause problems. They name a chow hall after you. It's all cool, right? I didn't know what I was going to be anymore. My buddies injected themselves into my life over and over, and they, they forced me to know that I was valued. Sometimes the word stigma is used. You know, there's a stigma with getting involved in people's lives. I call it cowardice. I watched my buddies, same guys who saved me in a gunfight overseas, I watched them save me again. They pushed through it. They weren't embarrassed. They knew that I needed help. It was that simple. And they were going to patch me up again. So I hope, if you guys are ever in a position where you see that somebody's having a difficult time, you realize that maybe being embarrassed is the biggest risk if you confront them about it but it's probably worth it. And what a story, and thanks to Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch for sharing that story. And there's a stigma that comes along with mental illness and with soldiers. Oh, my goodness, how many times do you say the word, I was embarrassed? I was a team leader, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward. I was embarrassed, he said. Never once did I realize how fortunate I was. Brother, I love the line, you don't get any medals driving your buddy to the psych ward. And it's so true. My life was being a Navy SEAL. The way my career ended, it was really difficult. And so many men who fight for us, right? who fight for all of us, that's the case. He came back, and my goodness, did he have troubles adjusting. And it took that one girl's story to turn everything around having to deal with being raped by uncles in front of her father. And he thought, what the heck am I complaining about? How lucky I am. I did something I volunteered for, surrounded by people I loved. 
And my goodness, having those good people around him to help him through this difficult time. And now he's got a mission. He has a nonprofit that has a lot to do with helping prepare working dogs for life in the working world. Navy SEAL Senior Chief Jimmy Hatch's story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and for the hour, we're going to celebrate the life of Arnold Palmer. He wasn't precious, and he wasn't privileged. One reporter called him Marlon Brando with a golf club. He created Arnie's army, well, because he had a love for people, and you're going to hear about it from the people, from every walk of life, movie stars, fellow golfers, ordinary Americans. You'll even hear Bob Green's remarkable Wall Street Journal column when, as a kid reporter, he actually stumbles out onto the course during an actual match to interview Arnold Palmer. And you won't believe what Palmer does because he could have done a lot of things. And it's a classic Palmer story. Was he the best ever? Who cares? Let others argue about that. He was a great one. Was he the most important? You're going to find out that he was. Because it ended up he democratized a sport that had been only for the elites. But he didn't just democratize it. He commercialized it. He was the first to win $1 million on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. 68 PGA wins, 7 majors, 4 masters. 4. That's crazy. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania to a working-class family in a steel town. But let's take a listen first before we dig into this biography to some of the folks who remembered Arnold Palmer. Let's go to Latrobe, Pennsylvania first, his home, where an airport's named after him, because, again, he flew his own plane and he loved aviation. Here's a report from the small town TV station. You can see that a growing memorial is starting to take form here outside of the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport. And even the flags are at half staff today. People I talk to in this community tell me that this loss is truly heartbreaking. Stu Hartman stopped by the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport with flowers in hand, paying respect to an icon. He touched a lot of people in so many ways and a true gentleman. I had the opportunity to meet him once and he just the most down-to-earth guy you want to meet. We're going to miss him terribly. Arnold Palmer's legacy just wasn't on the golf course, but also Latrobe and surrounding community. The airport, named in his honor, where he served on the Westmoreland County Airport Authority. Great loss all over, but especially around here, uh, he was uh, he was a great guy, and he you know he did a lot for for everything, including the airport. 
Palmer was also the president and principal owner of the Latrobe Country Club. Just down the road in Youngstown, signs of gratitude and thanks and fly with angels, Arnie. A man whose kind hardness, spirit and generosity is just as big as his talents on the links. He sat with kings and queens and presidents and and he was just as happy sitting with a bunch of guys from the mill or the for the coal mines and he wasn't pretentious. He was a, he was what you know everybody calls a good egg. We were just uh, so blessed to have had him uh, amongst us and we're going to miss him. He sat with kings and he did. You'll learn that General and President Dwight D. Eisenhower actually showed up at his doorstep to hang with him for a weekend and play some golf. But yet he was just as comfortable with just ordinary working class folks because he saw himself as ordinary. There's just no doubt. Part of the big three in the 1960s of golf, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer, and Jack Nicklaus. But there was no rivalry in sports quite like Nicklaus and Palmer. Let's take a listen to Jack Nicklaus remembering his friend. We'd be playing together, and one of us would shoot 73, and the other one would shoot 74. We walk off, and he says, well, I got you today. Well, while the rest of the field just passed us. We didn't really care whether the rest of the field passed us or not. We wanted to beat each other. And uh, we've been that way all our lives, but yet then we'd finish the round. We'd shake hands and go have dinner together. Well, I think it's the legacy of the game of golf is he's the guy that popularized the game. He's the guy that moved forward. Uh, he handled, he led his life the right way. He was, uh, uh, he was, uh, he was a, strickler, uh, a stickler for uh, dress codes and, and uh, you know, uh, clean faces and uh, short hair. And, you know, he was pretty much the old school. He loved the traditions of the game. He loved the traditions of, of how you're supposed to handle yourself and, and how you're supposed to represent uh, yourself in the game. I think the, the best memories are memories of uh, uh, the two of us and just being friends, having each other's back, doing, supporting each other in a variety of different ways. I spoke to him about two weeks ago on his birthday. I, I used to always call him on his birthday. and uh, That was September 10th. and uh, He... Um, uh, he sounded great. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing good. He said, I'm coming back. He said, I'm starting to hit some golf balls again. And, uh, and I don't know whether he was or not, but that's what he said. Well, we talked a little bit. I thought he was doing great. I was really, uh, he was a lot better than he was uh, uh, at Augusta this year. At Augusta this year, he didn't look very good. And we were, were worried about him. And, uh, then, and then, he, then he starts sounding better. You hate to lose a friend and you hate to lose any kind of a good friend. And, but I, don't, I, I sort of look back and remember the good times we had. Uh, we're both getting pretty old, and uh, uh, you know I think that we had a lot of good times, a lot of good things that we did together, uh, a lot of a lot of great uh, uh, competitions, and a lot of great times together with our wives. And you know that's that's the things you remember. And that is the thing you remember. Here's Freddie Couples, who called into a sports station, and Freddie's a, a remarkable golf talent. And he actually gets overwhelmed by the prospect of thinking about talking about his close friends passing. Uh, you remember your first encounter with Arnold? Uh, yeah, and I, I just want to start by, you know, I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. Um, Freddie, you with us? I can't feel you, guys. Oh. 
and it's a tough loss, Freddie. I can't do anything, Freddie Couple says. Very powerful. When we come back, you're going to hear from so many more people on the life of Arnold Palmer. And you can only hope when you pass that people are crying like that about you, folks. Take a listen to The Secret. You're going to hear it from Arnold Palmer, from beyond, from all of his friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're continuing with our celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer and what a life it was you just heard a grown man openly and just outwardly crying on air could not get it together and this is how he impacted by the way his peers so here are these people he's competing with every day day in day out and he forged deep relationships with the people who once they went on the course, he wanted to win. But the second he got off, he wanted to help their friend, his friends. And they were all friends, these guys, and you can hear it. Here's Lee Trevino. My goodness, we could do an hour on him. His life is so compelling. Here's Lee Trevino, what it was like playing with Arnold Palmer. Arnie couldn't move me. I was always, I love Arnold so bad. I always played bad with Arnie because I was making sure, you okay? You need a Coke? A hot dog? I want to take care of Arnie. You know, Arnie like a father figure to us, I, and he is, and, and I love this guy, and we're just wondering, you know, you okay, you okay? I, I remember playing the last competitive round that he played in Houston. I birdied one, I birdied two, we go to tee off at three, and he looked at me and he says, what the hell are you doing? And I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He said, don't embarrass me like this. I said, oh, okay. So, now we go the next hole to part three, and I hit one up there about eight feet, and Arnie, Arnie hits it, you know, and Arnie's going, you know, how he does it. and he's going like this, and the ball gets up on the bank and comes back in the water, and he said, how close is that? <laughs> and I said, Arnie, I said, I said, Augusta Pines were playing in Houston there. And I said, Arnie, I said, the pin's over there. He said, what? I said, that's a tree you're shooting at over there. I said, I said, the pin's over there. And that's when he quit. He quit right there. Right there, he said to me, he said, I'm not playing anymore. I said, what do you mean I'm not playing anymore? He said, that's it. I'm not, that's my last competitive shot. And I said, well, what do you want to do? I'm going to get a card for you. I'll have you take him back to the, to the clubhouse. Oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm not going back to the clubhouse. He said, I'm going to finish my round. He says, but I don't want to keep score. So he told the guy holding the thing up, he said, put, put five under on there and leave it. I said, <laughs> Self-deprecating. I mean, here's the, the, the greatest 
perhaps golfer of all time, and he's just cutting it up even as he's losing his sight and his his hand-eye and depth coordination and knowing that it's time to stop. He's still making it fun. I don't know how you do that, but again, this is what made Arnold Palmer Arnold Palmer. Lee Trevino continues with another story. Arnie gets up there, and, and, and he's going around, and, and I've already got this figured out. I've already said, you know, this is his last round. My wheels are turning, and I said, I'm going to get his ball. I'm going to have him sign his ball, and I'm going to have his last competitive golf ball. So he's hitting so many in the lake because he's taking chances. I mean, he's just ripping everything. And he keeps losing balls, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried like hell that he's going he's to he's gonna run out of balls. <laughs> He's going to end up signing one of mine. <laughs> Man, this is going to be awful. So he's, he keeps hitting them in the water and everything. We get on 17. Still 500. He's still 500. <laughs> People are going bad. And so he, he gets on 17, and just for some reason, for some reason, this, this group's putting on the green up there, and he says, Four! <laughs> I always wanted to do that. <laughs> but anyway, he finishes. And, and I'm just I'm just dying. I'm hoping. I'm looking for balls in the water every time he hits one. I'm looking fishing for him. I'm saying he's gotta have that ball with a little umbrella on it. You know, he had all the golf balls have that little umbrella. And sure enough he had one. So on my half he got the ball. I got the ball. We didn't think about taking the shoes. You know, we didn't think about it. But he keeps all his shoes. And Trevino talked about how Palmer never threw anything away. They were doing a, a deal on him about all his stuff that he's had, all the equipment and everything. He's, yeah, he's never thrown away anything. You know, he still has all the balls he played with. You know, Sneed kept them all, but he sold them. You know, uh, Arnie just keeps them. He's got the gloves. Every pair of shoes he ever owned, he still has. Every club. He's got a wall like that with all persimmon drivers in the wall like, that, he, that he'd had over all the years. But he keeps the tractors, you know, the Toro tractor and everything. Yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a beautiful, you know, they could do a program on hoarding, you know what I mean? <laughs> but this is not a mess, this is, this is really classy, yeah. And you could just tell the love and the friendship and the collegiality and the details. He knew a lot of details about this man's life and listened to the laughter in the crowd. Greg Norman, the great champion calls into a talk show and remembers his friend, Arnold Palmer. I've known him for uh, 35 years, plus years, and uh, I knew him on the golf course, I knew him off the golf course, I knew him in a locker room, uh, I knew him in such social settings and uh, where you've got to know the individual. And quite honestly, Stuart, um, there's two people that have, well, actually three, but two in the sporting world that have actually impacted my life dramatically, and that would be Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer. Both of them had magnetism and charisma oozing out of their skin. Um, and he was a man of the people, for the people. Wow, imagine being in that company. Two guys, one of them is Muhammad Ali, the other is Arnold Palmer. Here's Greg Norman on how Palmer brought money to the game. He brought money to the game. He, you know, Every player today owes a debt of thank, uh, thank you to Arnold Palmer for what he's done. These guys, Roy McIlroy won $11.5 million yesterday. Uh, Roy McIlroy could never have won $11.5 million if it wasn't for Arnold Palmer and what he did bringing the audience uh, to the game of golf through the TV screen. And here's Norman giving advice. 
to younger players? Every young player today should go back and watch old footage of Arnold Palmer. Old footage where Arnold was walking down the fairways. There were no gallery rows back then. Uh, you actually walked down there. People were touching you, feeling you, smelling you, talking to you, <laughs> wanting to be involved with you. And Arnold embraced every single one of them. And today, you know, a lot of players are very stoic. I get it from security concerns and all that stuff. Why, you know, you have security everywhere and people roped off everywhere. I get it. But quite honestly, Arnold was the one that brought people to him. They brought people to the game of golf. And we should all all sit back and take a week of looking all at all the old footage of Arnold Palmer and how he brought people to the game of golf. And this could apply to your business. This could apply to your church and or your family. And that's just his openness, his willingness to reveal himself to others, share with others, and just love on other people and total strangers. Here's the legendary sportscaster Jim Nance. And my goodness, he was just tearing up the whole day. Jim was just struggling. And I've never, ever seen Jim Nance struggle. He does Super Bowls. There's nothing Jim doesn't do. And here's Jim with Gary Player. Go out and watch Arnold Palmer for a day. Walk around 18 holes. Watch how many hands he shakes. How many people he makes eye contact with. Look at the patience he had with people with autographs. I mean, people just swarming on him. I mean, he's been so wonderful for the game. And here's Bill Murray. And you know him as an actor, but my goodness, if Bill Murray could do or be anything, it would be a professional golfer. And if he could be one person, there's no doubt he'd want to be Arnold Palmer. Let's take a listen to Bill Murray, who is on For the Win, our friends over at USA Today. Well, I mean, I I remember playing golf with him. He was grinding because he was getting ready for a senior uh, open. And so he was very focused on playing. And then when it was ended, he signed autographs for about... Almost three full hours straight. Wow. I never saw anything like it. I mean, he was wow. sitting down, and they kept giving him like short glasses of Rolling Rock, but he signed for like two hours and 45 minutes straight. I never saw anything like it. It's amazing. I just want to stand there. It- you know, we'll be doing an hour on Bruce Springsteen soon. His, his memoir, Born to Run, is something almost anyone should read, even if you're not a music fan. But for anybody who ever had the opportunity to see Bruce in a concert, it was really the same thing. The first guy to go out into the audience, to throw himself into the audience, and the first guy to just say, as long as the audience is out there, I'm going to keep playing. And still to this day in his mid-60s, playing four-hour concerts. Because his feeling is, look, folks have driven a long way to see me. This may be the only time they've ever seen me, or ever will. They've put down their hard money, hard-earned money on the line, and I'm going to give them back more than I possibly can. As John Stewart once said about him, he leaves no gas in the tank and Arnold Palmer left no gas in the tank when we come back we'll hear from Dan Patrick we'll hear Arnold Palmer talk about his father his roots and so much more including how Arnold Palmer professionalized and commercialized professional sports this is Lee Habib this is Our American Stories the life of Arnold Palmer celebrated for the hour
please join me in a welcome, a salute, and a heartfelt thank you to our four-time Masters champion, Mr. Arnold Palmer. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of Arnold Palmer. That was the kickoff to the 2016 Masters. And what a better way to do it than to introduce to the public again and always the man who won four green jackets. Four. Now let's pick up with more celebrations. We just heard from Bill Murray. There was one more we wanted to play before we dig into the life of Arnold Palmer. But my goodness, what better way to recall a life than to hear the voices of so many different people from so many different walks of life. Here's the broadcaster, Dan Patrick, talking about the impact Palmer had on him. I still go back to one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite moments in doing this was at the Fred Meyer Challenge. Peter Jacobson, he uh, hosted this in Portland. And he'd have all the golf pros there raising money for charity. And I brought the radio show up there with Rob Dibble when I was at the mothership. And we're on the 18th. And then I thought, Arnold and Jack... And Peter Jacobson were playing the 18th. And, and I thought I would bring a microphone out there while on the show live and follow them off to the side. So Peter Jacobson looks at me on the side of the fairway. And he's, he motions for me to come here, come here. And I don't even know what he's talking about. They're playing. And I, I walk out on the course. And Jake goes, isn't this great? I said, yeah, like what am I doing out here? And he said, walk in with us, walk in with us. So I'm behind Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Peter Jacobson, going into the 18th. And to walk up and hear that swell, hear that applause, they hear it all the time. But to be able to see it from their perspective, still one of the great moments I ever had. And Arnie was so generous. I remember that handshake of his. It hurt. It was a big hand. He had these big forearms. But he was... He was James Bond before James Bond. He was dashing. He made golf cool. It was just fun to be around that. He hadn't played in 43 years the last time he was on tour. PJ Tour, 43 years. And he was still one of the top earners. He had this name, this name that rose above his sport. He was, had his own soft drink. I mean, he was famous in you know, non-golf circles. That's when you know you've made it. But Arnold Palmer had his own plane. I mean, everything about him. You know, he, wore a, he wore a cardigan and looked great. There was just something about Arnold. You know, he just had a heater in his mouth and his sleeves rolled up and just ready to go. Whatever it was, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. A little bit about his life. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, a working-class steel mill town, the son of Doris and Milford Jerome Deacon Palmer. He learned golf from his father who had suffered from polio at a young age and was head professional and greenskeeper at Latrobe County Country Club, allowing young Arnold to accompany his father as he maintained the course. Let's hear Arnold talk about his father and how his dad was his biggest influence, describing him as, well, tough, but honest. He was a tough, hard-working golf pro. And he learned both ends of the business the hard way, by experience and by personal uh, work and 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 fun. And, uh, and he was tough. He never 
he never let up. He stayed tough uh, all his life. And as a matter of fact, I think about it, uh, he died a tough guy. He played 27 holes of golf the day he passed. And he was tough. He was honest. And uh, he was probably as honest uh, as I've ever seen anyone. He, he said it the way it was. He did it the way it was. Uh, he, he helped everybody he could. Uh, he contributed. Uh, probably the toughest guy that he dealt with was his son. Palmer goes on to talk about not having much money in his early life growing up and the sacrifices his dad made. In my family, my father and our, and our family uh, had no money most of our early lives. We, we would come out and hunt rabbits and pheasants and, uh, and take them home, and my mother would soak them in salt water overnight, and, and we'd eat them the next day, and that was great stuff. Uh, but that was part of all of the education. Uh, and, and my father, when he bought uh, groceries, if he didn't have enough money to pay for it, I, I remember him scraping up enough money to go pay the bill, and, and he did. And he, he, he sacrificed the things that he liked to pay the bills for groceries that we ate. And, and that was his life. That was the way he lived in the early days. And... And, of course, he told me how he appreciated uh, the fact that he was lucky enough to be a golf pro and to uh, be able to make a living doing what he was doing. And here's Arnold talking about his dad's first compliment, the first compliment Arnold ever gets from him, and it was after winning the National Amateur Championship. Nice corn, boy. That's all he said. But that, in a way, wasn't that the first time he complimented you? My father was very tough. He was never one for throwing out rewards or uh, congratulations. And, and, and when he said, nice going, boy, I knew what it meant. And I felt it, and I was grateful. I called it the turning point. And... Uh, it was the turning point in the way it it gave me uh, the confidence that I needed to go ahead, turn pro, and get on the tour and play. And, of course, with the contract that I had with Wilson, which goes back a few years, uh, it was pretty restricted because uh, I wasn't getting a lot of money. I was getting enough to survive. And we're going to talk about that restrictive relationship with Wilson and the nature of the business of golf and the business of sports in just a minute as we go to the last part of our celebration. What you're about to hear about Arnold Palmer, my goodness, I had no idea myself. But that victory was the turning point in his life, winning the U.S. Amateur in Detroit in 1954. After that match, Palmer stopped the job he had at the time of selling paint and then continued to play in tournaments. There, in a weight memorial tournament in Shawnee on Delaware, Pennsylvania, he met his future wife, Winnie Walzer, and they would remain married for 45 years until her death 
1999. And Arnold remarried again in 2005. And his kids were so happy. And so were friends. And one just said this in a golf magazine about dad. I think the companionship that dad has now found with his new wife, Kit, is just what he needed. I think he needed someone that enjoys the things he enjoys. I think that everybody embraced her in a way that I don't think, well, I don't think she ever felt there was a looming presence of my mom. But I think it's nice to see my dad finally again with someone he loves. And it took him six years to find new love. And I think, again, one woman, man, simple life, simple principles. And by the way, the way he talked about his dad, it, it almost word for word sounds like Brett Favre and the way he talked about his dad. Not abulence, not a, a kind word every minute, but when he finally did say, good job, son, or that a boy, my goodness, those words meant something. These fathers were living in examples of how to be good dads. They may not have spoken the words a lot, but they were there. Their presence was felt. Their love felt. Arnold Palmer, his life. When we come back, the business life of Arnold Palmer. This is a heck of a story. This is Our American Stories, our final segment, an hour-long celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer. And now this is the business life, because he changed sports as we know it. For every athlete that plays today, they have Arnold Palmer to thank for the story you're about to hear. Let's get the 30,000 overview from Dominic Chu, who filed this report for CNBC. I look back at Arnold Palmer's legacy off the golf course. Perhaps no other man in the history of golf did more to bring the game to the masses than Arnold Palmer. And he did so with the style and flair that helped set the stage for golf as we know it today. But it's off the golf course where Palmer parlayed his prowess on the links into a business empire. His business and endorsement deals have made him one of the richest sports figures in history. He's endorsed dozens of brands, everything from Cadillac to Hertz to Rolex to Pennzoil. Same Pennzoil. New package. According to Forbes, his net worth is estimated to be around $875 million, and that lands him at third among the world's highest paid athletes. Palmer's business empire has a variety of different operations. Among them, a golf course design company that has had a hand in the creation of over 300 golf courses all across the world. He had an ownership interest in famed golf resort Pebble Beach. He teamed up with a lawyer named Mark McCormick, and that relationship was a cornerstone to what would eventually become sports agency giant International Management Group, or IMG. He even licensed his name to one of his favorite drinks, a mixture of lemonade and iced tea. The Arizona Beverage Company produces over 400 million cans of Arnold Palmer's each year. And it's fitting that television propelled him to stardom in his early years, for in 1995, he helped start the Golf Channel, which at the time was the first ever single sport cable network. 
This week, the golfing world converges on Chaska, Minnesota for the USA versus Europe Ryder Cup competition. It's held every two years. Remembering Arnold Palmer's life and contributions to the game is expected to be a part of the celebration. But off the course, Palmer will be remembered as one of the kings of sports marketing, laying the groundwork for other athletes to follow in the legacy that he worked so hard to create. For Nightly Business Report, I'm Dominic Chu at the New York Stock Exchange. And Matt Fullerman wrote a terrific piece on what Arnold Palmer meant to the modernization and commercialization of sports. And when it was time to renew his contract with Wilson, and it was at the time just almost a, a, a slave labor contract, they just barely paid anybody anything. Palmer and Wilson spent a year in negotiations, eventually drafting a long-term deal, but Palmer knew that something was missing. Palmer is a, is a pretty conservative guy, and he wants to get the deal done. But he also wants this one other thing, which is a life insurance policy, and a life insurance policy that would you know, protect his two young daughters and his wife in case anything happened to him. He's driving around to tournaments in, you know, in, in the middle of the night, uh, flying in rickety planes all over the country, and really all eventually, pretty soon thereafter, all over the world. You know, this is not the the, the safest thing, and. You know, everybody wants a life insurance policy to protect their families. And it would have cost Wilson $880 a year. And they would have been taking money that would have been gone to him as income anyway, and just before it went to him as income, buying a, you know, a tax-deferred life insurance policy. And everyone says okay, except for James Cooney, who was the CEO of Wilson at the time. And... You know, he just did not have any respect for athletes and, and golfers, and there was just no way he could think of giving a life insurance policy uh, for even at the low cost of $880 a year to a golfer. And that became all Palmer's line in the sand. It was a hard line. Palmer left Wilson as soon as his contract allowed and started his own business. There were so many things that could have gone wrong. So why did Palmer take such a chance. He risked it all, and he did it because he realized that if he didn't do it, golfers and athletes were just never going to be respected. If he, if the best golfer in the world, the most charismatic athlete on the planet at that point, arguably, wasn't going to get a fair deal, then no one was going to get a fair deal. And that's why he, that's why he said enough is enough. And it turned out all right because uh, none of those terrible things happened. Um, He launched the Arnold Palmer Golf Company. So within about three years of him turning down the deal with Wilson, he went from making roughly $10,000 a year off the sale of equipment and golf balls and things like that that had his name on it to making roughly $500,000 a year for that. And that was the launch of an empire. And by the way, for a little bit of levity, we heard about that drink. Here's Arnold Palmer telling the story of how the drink came to be named after him. Well, I will tell you, it started right here, uh, about 100 yards from where we are. I came home one day and uh, my wife made a lot of iced tea for lunch. And I said, hey, babe, I've got an idea. I said, you make the iced tea, make a big pitcher. And we'll just put a little lemonade in it and see how that works. So we we mixed it up, and I got the solution about where I wanted it. 
and I put the lemonade in it, and I had it for lunch after working on the golf course. And I thought, boy, this is great, babe. I'm going to take it when I play golf. I'm going to take a thermos of iced tea and lemonade. I was building a golf course in uh, Palm Springs, and it was a very hot summer day. It was about 115 degrees, and we had gone in for lunch. And I uh, said to the waitress, could you do me a favor? And she said, sure, what is it? I said, I want an iced tea, but I want about a... Oh, a third or a quarter of it in lemonade. All of a sudden, the waitress went over to another table, and the lady at the table said, I want an Arnold Palmer. Well, all of us turned our head. We thought, what is she talking about? And she said, I want what he ordered. And it was, it was me, and, it, and that was the, and she called it an Arnold Palmer. Well, from that day on, it spread like wildfire. I was embarrassed to ask for an Arnold Palmer. I always say, can I have a, a, an iced tea and, and put about a third of it in lemonade? And they said, oh, you want an Arnold Palmer. <laughs> I just finally said, well, I won't fight the battle anymore. I'll just ask for an Arnold Palmer think maybe they won't know who I am. <laughs> and always self-deprecating. And you've heard of a lot of people this hour from Bill Murray, and you're going to hear from Jim Nance in a bit and Dan Patrick, but the best story of all was by Bob Green. And we tried to reach him, but Bob's just hard to reach, so I'm going to do a reading of his column because, well, Bob's such a good writer. And here's his story, and I think this illustrates why Palmer was so loved. Here's Arnold Palmer, who is everything, and here's a kid with a folded-up sheaf of copy paper and a ballpoint pen, who is nothing, and in a split second, Palmer has to make a decision. The decision, whichever way it goes, won't affect Palmer's life at all, but it has the potential to make the kid giddy with delight or to make him feel like an embarrassed idiot. This is the summer of 1967. Palmer has flown to central Ohio to play in a one-day pro-am. At 37 years old, he is one of the most adored and respected figures in American sports. The kid is me. I've caged a summer job helping out the lower circulation daily in a two-paper town. I'm working nights, so I don't have to be in the office until mid-afternoon. So I go to the golf course by myself in the morning. There are many golfers playing in the Pro-Am, a lot of them local duffers. But the crowds are following Arnie. It's as if the Beatles are performing on a hill and on a bill with a bunch of garage bands. There are ropes holding back the throngs, the vaunted Arnie's army. From one tee, Palmer comes into view, hitching up those trousers like no one else could. He's striding swiftly toward where his ball has landed, and here's the idiot part. I duck under the ropes and walk right up to him. You're not supposed to do such a thing. You're not supposed to go under the ropes. I didn't know. Maybe I did. I start to ask Palmer a question. Those pieces of copy paper in my hand triple folded like I'd seen the real reporters do. And the marshals are approaching. This is not going to be good. If I'm tossed out or carried out, it will be in front of all of those people. It will be a pretty comical, humiliating scene. And my Uncle Harmon, my mother's brother, is one of those people in the gallery who will witness it. I ask Palmer the question. He gives me a look. Who the heck are you? I work at the local paper, I tell him. 
I don't mention just how low-level and transitory my job is or that no one has assigned me to be at the tournament. And here's the moment. Here's where Palmer either will motion for the marshals or give me the heave-ho, or he won't. He kind of laughs at the absurdity of this. Who is dumb enough at a professional golf event to duck under the ropes and approach a player? And not just any player, the most revered player in the game. Palmer patiently answers the question. He generously gestures to keep me walking with him. He gives the marshals a little signal. Don't worry about it. This will be fine. Thus, for that one magical day, a day that when it started, I had no reason to believe would be anything other than unexceptional. I walked the entire golf course in the company of Arnold Palmer. Wow. And so we close out with one of the great sports broadcasters of all time. There's nobody like Jim Nance. He's done it all. Super Bowls, the biggest personalities in sports history. And you could tell throughout the day as he was commenting that this was personal, the passing of Arnold Palmer. And so we close out the hour with Jim Nance. You know, his golf career has been over for a long time. And it'll always live on as a legendary career. But Arnold Palmer, the man, and how you treat people, that will live forever. 